Before this episode begins, I want to let our listeners know that this episode was recorded prior to the West Virginia Board of Education's motion to require all counties to provide in-person learning for students in grades pre-K through 8th. The West Virginia Board of Education, the West Virginia Department of Education, and our governor all encourage in-person learning for all of our students in this age group. However, it is understood that there may be instances where blended learning is necessary. Please keep in mind that in this episode, there may be references to remote or distance learning, but this discussion is only intended for the context of the rare occasions that schools are using the blended model for instruction. For more guidance about in-person instruction, please visit our show notes at wvde.us forward slash leaders of literacy, click on podcast and click on the show notes for episode 29. Hello, fellow educators, and welcome to episode 29 of the West Virginia Leaders of Literacy podcast. I'm your host, Becky Lewis. Joining me today is my co-host for the month, Samantha Statler. Sam and I are going to wrap up our conversation around student engagement by welcoming onto the podcast educational expert, Dr. Douglas Fisher. Welcome to the West Virginia Leaders of Literacy podcast, where we engage in educational conversations to strengthen early literacy in West Virginia. Are you ready to become a leader of literacy? Hello, listeners. I want to begin by thanking you for joining us today as Samantha Statler and I continue our conversation on student engagement. Sam, thank you so much for being here today, and I'm really excited about the guests that we have joining us on today's show. Yes, Becky, I have been looking forward to our podcast today, and I am so excited to have Dr. Doug Fisher with us to share some of his expertise. Dr. Doug Fisher is a professor and chair of educational leadership at San Diego State University and a leader at Health Sciences High and Middle College, having been an early intervention teacher and elementary school teacher. He is also the recipient of an International Reading Association William S. Gray Citation of Merit and Exemplary Leader Award from the Conference on English Leadership of NCTE, as well as a Krista McAuliffe Award for Excellence in Teacher Education. He has published numerous articles on reading and literacy, differentiated instruction, and curriculum design, as well as books such as PLC+, Better Decisions and Greater Impact by Design, Building Equity, and Assessment Capable Learners. Yes, and our episode today is going to be around his latest publication, which is the Distance Learning Playbook that he co-authored with John Hattie and Nancy Fry. Dr. Fisher, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. In the last episode, Sam and I talked about the complexity of student engagement, um, how it's dependent upon different elements that educators need to consider. One of these elements is classroom management. As educators, we know that good classroom management is necessary for student engagement. And in the Distant Learning Playbook, it states that class agreements are essential for managing a smooth-running learning environment. In your opinion, what are the most important areas to focus on when creating classroom agreements? 
I think it's important to have conversations with students about the kind of learning environment they want to be part of. You know, what, how do they want to be treated? How they do expect others to treat them? What's the dynamics they're looking for? And I think we can have conversations with students about what kind of environment really works for us to learn. And then we reach some agreements that we hold ourselves and each other accountable for that. Uh, Nancy and I have spent a lot of time just saying a few very simple things to students. You know, we say, take care of yourself, take care of each other and take care of this place. And if we start with that, then students start to get into some specifics. What would it look like to take care of each other? What does it look like to take care of this place? What does it look like to take care of yourself? And when we start that conversation and, you know, if you have multiple classes, you're teaching five classes a day or whatever, you could have multiple different agreements because students need some ownership in how that room is going to operate. Yes. And I love how you're talking about um, forming these agreements and holding one another accountable. And again, just bringing in that ownership piece of their environment and of their learning. Um, could you kind of walk us through an example of how this is crafted? Well, it depends on the format of school. So if you are physically present versus if you are half kids coming to school physically, half kids remote or fully remote, or there's all these formats. The point is to have a conversation. Like, What is it that we agree to? So we see teachers, you know, facilitating a conversation, maybe with breakout rooms maybe with small group discussions, depending on the format of school. The point is that students know what a good classroom feels like. They know what it what it's like to be treated with respect. I think sometimes we get into these, you know, really hard to fast rules. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And it's not about the way the norms of our of our class and how we want to work together. Yes, there are some social rules that we have to follow. But that's not the norms and agreements that we have. Students want to have conversation about, in this environment, how do we want people to work together? And when we're thinking about those norms and agreements, I know it varies teacher to teacher and school to school. But when we're thinking about that, is there a difference that we should approach this when we're thinking about our youngest learners to some of our older students? Yeah, I think for the our young learners, they um, they want to have conversations. Often we read some books with them. We might share a text with them about being kind or uh, being respectful and then talking about what we want in our classroom. The language needs to be very understandable. As students get older, it tends to include things on social media. It tends to include more relational bullying and those kinds of things. Students tell us there's a big difference between a little teasing among friends and being mean to each other. That teasing is part of what you do when you're friends. And then if it's taken too much or if it's not based on a friendship, then it's mean and bullying. And students want to have conversations about that difference as they get older. Right. And I think, um, you know, just bringing that up as far as what friendships kind of look like and the difference there between bullying. I think that is a great point to bring up with the younger students and kind of how they view teasing and bullying and our older students as well. Another concept that has a big impact on student engagement is teacher-student relationships. And in the last episode, Becky and I talked a little bit about how educators can continue to build relationships with students. However, a part of that, we did not talk about how was educators can make classrooms inviting. And in the distance learning playbook, 
it talks about chilly classrooms. Can you discuss the differences between a chilly classroom and a classroom that engages its students who are described as maybe hard to teach? Awesome. Yes. I I just love that phrase from the research about the chilly classroom because you can just almost get a sense of the feel and how that must feel to the learners to have a chilly classroom. And there are things that teachers do subconsciously, unconsciously. We don't mean to do this, but there are things we do. We call on certain students less. We don't put our bodies near them. So we don't have proximity with them. We we don't recognize their answers. We don't offer them friendly conversation. There's just things that we tend to do to students who are lower achieving or students from certain backgrounds that have experienced lack of success. And it, and it bears out in the research that there are things people do unintentionally that send that message that, you know, you're kind of a bother. You're kind of not welcome here. Uh, We don't mean to say it. It's not a conscious mean act, but it's it's more of this thing that starts to happen in a classroom. So what we work on is finding students who are not yet achieving well and then recruit them. Make sure you say their name multiple times, not as a correction. Make sure you're calling on them, inviting them to participate. Make sure you are around them, whatever you're allowed to be around them looks like in the school system at the time. Uh, make sure their answers are validated. Make sure you're asking them some critical thinking questions. And we re-recruit them into class. And although, by the way, the rest of the students in the class, they notice it. They all notice. There's this whole um, this set of research of if students think a specific learner is disliked by the teacher, the rest of the kids dislike that student too. The teachers have a powerful influence on that. And being disliked or feeling that you are disliked by the teacher, not even actually being disliked, but feeling you are disliked by the teacher has a harmful effect on your achievement. So if students don't think their teachers like them, they actually learn less this year than they did the previous year. And that is so powerful because you mentioned a lot of these things, we do them subconsciously. We don't even realize that we are um, doing this in our classrooms. And one more thing I you know, wanted to ask was how do touch points increase engagement? Right. So the idea of touch points is really around how, what's the frequency of different kinds of contact you can have with students. So with some, there are, there are electronic communication, one-way messaging that some school districts use that increase touch points. There are ways to communicate to families about a student in a positive way that increase touch points. There's, you know, walking around and recognizing a student, having a special signal with that student. Uh, one of my colleagues, before we closed for COVID, he had a special handshake with every kid in the school, and he could remember 600 some handshakes. And there's another touch point, um, greeting students uh, by name, saying hello to them, welcome to class, whatever language you use, another touch point. Every opportunity you have to make that connection with that learner. And I think those touch points are so important. I know that teachers who have that increased engagement in their classroom obviously do a lot of those touch points, and I've seen it in person. I wanted to ask um, a follow-up question to that. And I know we subconsciously have this way we act towards other students. Um, Is there any advice you could give about how to be more cognizant of those reactions to those students? Sure. So you can take a short video of your class and analyze it for those those interactions 
You can invite a friend in to watch you and have an honest conversation. That means you've even thought about this. So as a teacher, are there students that I am unintentionally sending a message to that you aren't important? That's the question. Am I unintentionally doing this? And what the research talks about is when it's brought to our attention, we change our behavior. We actually go and re-recruit kids who are struggling to learn in our classes. So it starts with being aware. Is it possible that there are students who do not perceive a strong, healthy relationship with you? Is it possible that some students have fewer interactions with you? And if you believe that that's possible, then seek out data and find out how that might happen, where that might be happening, and what you can do about it. That's really great. Um, I'm so glad that you shared that because I think many teachers are going to find that information valuable because I know when I was in the classroom, that really would have helped me as well. Awesome. We've all had the experience of designing a learning task that was fun and engaging for our students and then later realizing that it kind of fell short in terms of what they actually learned from that experience. Can you discuss those three types of engagement, um, behavioral engagement, cognitive engagement, and emotional engagement, and kind of elaborate on each when you're thinking about designing a, a lesson or a learning experience for students? Sure. So that's a bit of an older engagement model. And so we want to make reference to it. So there's this idea that we don't just look at behavioral engagement, that when you walk in a class and you see a student staring out the window, you don't know if the student is cognitively engaged or not. We tend to talk more about behavioral engagement. And there are ways to think about this. And are students engaged behaviorally? Are they looking at the teacher? Are they looking at their classmates? You know, where, where's their attention focused? Um, we can think about cognitive engagement, like are, is your mind on the lesson? Is your mind on the task at hand? Are you reflecting and thinking? And then there's emotional engagement, your investment and your regulation of your emotions. And, and so that's been the model out there for a while. It turns out that it's not highly predictive of who learns more because there are so many false positives, right? You see students who appear very, very behaviorally engaged, but are not cognitively engaged. Or you see students who don't appear behaviorally engaged, who are emotionally very invested in the lesson, but they're thinking deeply about it. So they put their head down and they're processing. And so there's this strangeness to it. So I like this other model that Barry published in March of 2020 that put engagement on a continuum. And in the middle of the continuum, it's being passive. And in both directions, disengagement and engagement, it goes to active. Because we can have students who are actively disengaged and students are actively engaged. And Barry came up with these six levels of engagement. You're super distracting, withdrawing, avoiding. And then as you move up, you can get into participating, investing, and then what she called driving your learning. And each move to the right should correspond with more learning. So if you're driving your learning, you are setting goals. You are seeking feedback. You are monitoring your own progress. You are self-assessing. You're actively engaged in that. So it's not so much about dissecting behavioral, cognitive, emotional. It's about the actions. So we started working on this and we have students as a class define what behaviors would contribute to each of those six. So what does it look like in our class when we're avoiding our learning? And one of the students said, well, when I'm thinking about Fortnite, when I should be thinking about math, I'm avoiding my learning. 
And so they name things and they keep track of it. And at the end of the lesson, we ask students, where were you today in your level of engagement? And can you provide two pieces of evidence to support your self-assessment of your own engagement? And it turns out that they can, and they're really good at it. And they're very aware when they're given the language and the labels, they're very aware of their level of engagement. And they can make conscious choices. They can make a conscious choices to say, I'm going to start asking questions because I want to move to investing. I want to invest in my learning. And the thing about this continuum of engagement is that it's setting free. You can use it full remote, blended, hybrid, high flex, simultaneous, I mean, physical. I mean, you could use the levels of engagement in any format of school. I think the key to this is that every time we change the format of school, we have a conversation with students about the levels of engagement and what it will look like in this format of school. So if we're having uh, what's now known as the roomies and zoomies, so if you have some kids zooming in from home and some kids physically present, if you have that format of school, let's talk about what engagement looks like. If you're on a roomy day, what does engagement look like? If you're a zoomy day, what does engagement look like? And some kids are only zooming into classes uh, because of decisions and health and that kind of thing. And some kids are going to physical school and some schools are completely remote. So school looks very different, but we can always have a conversation. And I imagine when I was a first grade teacher, what, you know, my conversation would have looked like if I would have asked my students, you know, what does it look like when we are avoiding our learning? Um, I think that really helps students realize, like you said, that they are in charge of their learning, that they can drive their learning and to teach them to make those good conscious choices. You're absolutely right, Sam. And speaking of driving learning, Dr. Fisher, you've said before that students can perceive when a task is meaningless or it's just busy work and that they're not likely to stay engaged if they cannot perceive the importance or relevance of a task. Would you care to elaborate on that? So I think students uh, should be able to answer three questions for each lesson. What am I learning today? Why am I learning this? And how will I know that I learned it? And if they can answer those three questions, they are way more likely to see relevance in the tasks they're doing. This is what we're supposed to be learning. I accept that. I understand why there's relevance here. And I know what success looks like. If we can get to the point where our lessons focus on those three questions, I think students will make a lot more decisions to do the work. And they'll make decisions about, this doesn't help me learn this. This doesn't help me become successful. This is not relevant. And that's when they can have an honest conversation and say, why are we doing this? Why, why this task? Why this task? How is this helping me? I do think we need to talk with our students about the role of practice. Practice helps you learn things. And so some students think practice, you know, boring or whatever. We have to make sure that students understand the value of practice and that it's meaningful and that it's deliberate and that we're working towards a goal. I mean, like if you want to play soccer, you know, five days a week, you'll practice just so that you might get a chance to play on Saturday. And I think the reason so many kids will practice soccer or whatever, or the piano is because they have this mental model. This is what it looks like to play soccer. This is what it sounds like to play the piano. And if we don't give them those mental models in our content area, then they might not see the relevance. They might not see why this kind of practice is actually going to help you be better. 
And you mentioned there about boredom, and sometimes students don't understand the importance of the task at hand. Um, from John Hattie's work, we know that boredom has a negative 0.47 effect size. What evidence and experiences have you seen with this in terms of student engagement while working with educators on creating the distance learning playbook? I think there's all kinds of ways. You know, when we talk about engagement, a lot of people are meaning participation. So we set a goal that no more than 10 minutes is going to go by in a class without some sort of universal response opportunity. That every 10 minutes or less, students will be invited to respond in a universal, simultaneous way. And it really changes the dynamic. It really changes the whole flow. And this could be physical school. This can be remote, all the formats of school. If we commit to a universal response. And as we think about these universal responses, they can be micro assessments. They can help us make decisions. And in the old days, we used to have dry erase boards, personal whiteboards, and that was one universal response. And then, you know, a lot of teachers got away from it and they're having kids work on paper or whatever. We see response fans, response cards, you know, universal chat responses. There's all kinds of ways of soliciting a simultaneous response from students. You know, it really invites them to participate and you can notice who doesn't participate and have follow-up conversations, but it also helps guide the lesson. So it's not just busy work that I want to see the math that you finished on your dry erase board, or I want a, a photo of your work sent to me on the chat. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to get a universal response. Polling, you know, cahoots, especially if you turn off the time feature, it's the invitation to participate and the ability to adjust lessons based on that participation. Yes, I think that's a great idea, um, you know, to note there no more than 10 minutes or less to prompt your students to have that universal response. That's a great idea. You and your colleagues have been investigating how teachers, students, and families have responded to remote or distance learning. Um, what is the one thing that you have found that has surprised you the most? Um, I think the surprise is the parents are overhelping. And they mean well. They are trying to help us. And they're, you know, telling answers to questions. They're doing work for their children. And we see it all the time. And it's very frustrating for teachers. But let's not forget, we used to beg parents to be involved. And now they're doing things to help us. And if we don't shape what help looks like, then we're going to get frustrated. But here they are trying to help their kids as a partner with us. And I think the surprise for me is we need to teach parents about this. I'm not surprised that they're involved in their children's lives. It's awesome. I think parents care deeply about their kids learning. It's our surprise is why aren't we better at helping parents understand, teaching parents about the difference between telling answers and giving support. And if we could actually scaffold that to parents knowing that struggle is part of the learning process, there's nothing wrong with some productive struggle. It's actually good for your brains. If we could get to that point where parents were more guiding than telling, no matter what school looks like in the future, we'll have a partner that can be there with us, ensuring that kid is learning. Right. And it'll be interesting to see now, you know, especially in West Virginia, where we are transitioning back to face-to-face um, -face learning, to see where our parents and our families will kind of fall with that. 
um, their response to uh-huh. their their children going back to you know that face to face setting. And I was going to say, I love that idea of that scaffolding parent. Um, support and teaching them how to help their students and all about that productive struggle because I agree that little bit of struggle is great for students and often we don't give them enough time to struggle so that they can thrive and learn how to reflect and critically think to overcome those obstacles. So when talking about teacher credibility, why do you think teacher credibility have such a high effect size on student learning? And do you think that effect size is increased or decreased in a classroom? What do you mean in a classroom? A face-to-face wow. classroom compared to remote. Um, so teacher credibility is super powerful um, because it combines several things. Do I trust you? Do I think I can learn from you? Do I see passion coming from you? And do I feel that you're my ally, my supporter, you know, unconditional positive regard, which is called immediacy. So all four of these combine into a very powerful effect. Essentially, it's from the learner's perspective, are you someone I can learn from? And if I believe that, if I believe I can learn from you, I'm probably going to learn from you because I'm going to take in all the things you have to offer. If I don't believe I can learn from you, I don't trust you. I don't think you're competent. There's no dynamism and passion coming from you. I'm probably turning off and tuning out. And so I think it's logical that teacher credibility, when you add these four things together, is a very powerful accelerator for students. And we can all look back on our learning lives and pick out people where that was a passionate teacher who cared about my learning, who was highly skilled in the job, And I trusted that person. And we learned a lot from that person. So it's super logical. I don't think the format of school matters in teacher credibility. I think that it's the intentional moves that adults make to maintain their credibility in the eyes of students. So are you late to class all the time? Do you make promises that you don't keep? Do you keep changing your instructional routine so students don't know what's going to happen to them? Do you never call them by name or do you always call them by name? There's actions you can take that maintain and establish and ensure your credibility with your students. Right. And I can think back on teachers that I have had um, when I was a student that I felt were very passionate and cared about me, not only as a student in their classroom, but as a person. So I definitely think um, if teachers use those action steps that can really make a positive change in their relationships with their students. Yeah, I completely agree. We're winding down on time, so I wanted to ask you a final question and see if you can leave our listeners with one tip or a piece of advice to help them to develop as a leader of literacy. Yeah, thanks for that question. I think we have to commit to students' literacy lives, that it's not just these isolated instructional events. It's about growing young people in the and and understanding the power that literacy has in their lives. At our disposal as educators, literacy is among our best antidotes to poverty. Literacy makes your life better. People who are highly literate have better health outcomes. I mean, we just see all of this information about why literacy is so important. And giving students that power of understanding the, the way literacy works and 
and practice with it. So I think we focus too much on the skills related to literacy. There should be a thrill in reading and writing. There should be doing things that you care about, taking action in the world, making a difference. That's what our lessons need to end up with in literacy. Yes, comprehension, phonemic awareness, phonics, vocabulary, all of those are important. Fluency, oral language, all important, but they are in service of the thrill of comprehension, doing something that matters. For links to all the resources discussed in this episode and for additional information, please visit our website at wvde.us forward slash leaders of literacy. Click on podcast and click on the show notes for episode 29. Want to learn more about being a leader of literacy? Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single installment. In the next episode, we're welcoming a new co-host voice to the show, our new family support specialist, Blake Turley. Blake and I are going to center our conversation for next month around parent engagement. We will be welcoming onto the podcast an educational expert from the National Institute for Early Education Research. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening.